unity of the church. Um, I wrestled with how to boil everything down into one message since I have probably three or four or more messages on this subject on the church website plus an article that I wrote on the website about when do we join together, when do we separate from those who are called Christian and so um, I uh, wrestled to get this down but I want us to read three texts which um, deal with this subject and we'll be looking at them throughout the message. Uh, there are printed messages as usual. If you didn't grab one, you can, or there should be an outline in your bulletin. Um, the first one is in John chapter 17, reading verses 22 and 23. Jesus is praying the night in which he is betrayed. He says, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Uh, the second is just a single verse, but it occurs in a chapter I would have read had we had the time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, where Paul at length goes into the analogy of the church as the body of Christ. And in verse 13, after explaining in, in verse uh, 12 that there is one body with many members and so on, he says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And then the third text is in Ephesians chapter 4. And again, there are messages on these passages on the website if you want to read in more depth. Uh, in verses 1 through 6, Paul says, Therefore I the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then jumping down to verse 13 after mentioning how the uh, leaders of the church are gifted to equip the saints for the work of service, he adds in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The subject of the unity of the church is probably one of the most important in the Bible, and yet at the same time, it's one of the most difficult to apply 
in a biblically faithful manner. Uh, There is an opportunity even right now in our city to either apply it or not, where there is a call for a prayer meeting for our city uh, with all of the churches coming together. Sounds on the surface like a good thing. The catch is it's held over at the Roman Catholic Church, and so before you would go to that, you need to think through where do we draw the lines of fellowship in terms of praying with those who may say they are believers, but are they really? Do they affirm the gospel? And so, very practical subject, and one of the most frequent ways it is misapplied, and I hear this all the time, is People will say, well, the Bible says they'll know we're Christians by our love and not by our doctrinal correctness. And so let's set aside the areas where we differ and come together where we agree. And in the process of doing that, sound doctrine gets jettisoned and everyone joins hands and sings, we are one in the spirit, but is it true biblical unity? I would challenge that. Uh, On the other side of the pendulum or the spectrum, and things go to extremes, but there are people who, for the sake of doctrinal purity, draw the line so carefully that, in my opinion, they create unbiblical division. For example, there are some who will not fellowship with others who claim to be Christian unless you use the 1611 King James Bible. That is their standard. And if you differ from them on that, well, lots of luck, but they just will not associate with you. Other things I've seen, uh, divisions over views of prophecy or uh, the use of alcohol or tobacco or whether women should wear makeup or allowed to wear pants, there are uh, groups that will not allow those things. And if you don't agree, you are separated from those groups. Statistics uh, vary widely, but it's agreed there are tens of thousands of Protestant denominations in America and a number of dozens of Catholic denominations and Orthodox as well. Uh, You may not be aware of it, but our church is affiliated with a Baptist association. Among the Baptists alone, uh, this is not comprehensive, but you've got Southern Baptists, American Baptists, Conservative Baptists, Calvinistic Baptists, Free Will Baptists, uh, General Baptists, Landmark Baptists, Primitive Baptists, um, Regular Baptists, Old Regular Baptists, Old Time Missionary Baptists, Seventh Day Baptists, and then I didn't even know about this one until I was checking it out this week online. There are two seed in the spirit predestinarian Baptists. Um, Thankfully, there's only five of those congregations left as of 19 or 2002, according to Wikipedia. And I say thankfully because that group teaches that everyone is either predestined to be good seed 
or bad seed, and therefore they conclude that mission activity is both unbiblical and even useless. Uh, I say may their tribe decrease because the Bible is clear we are to be actively engaged in evangelism and missions. Um, In in the New Testament, uh, the local church was primarily defined by the city. You have the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, church in Ephesus, church in uh, Corinth, Rome, wherever it was. And that meant if you were a believer in Jesus and you lived in that city, you were a part of the church in that particular city. Uh, Probably in the larger cities, they met in various house churches uh, throughout the city, but the the leadership was one. There uh, There was a plurality of elders over each church, which comprised by the limit of a city. Churches didn't build church buildings to meet in until about the 4th century when Christianity became legal and persecution stopped. Uh, That was then. Now you've got dozens of churches in every city in North America probably. Here in Flagstaff, um, someone told me between services, there are actually 48 Uh, Protestant churches, but then in addition, you've got Roman Catholic and Orthodox, and uh, then if you go outside the city limits, there are several out in Doney Park area, and on it goes. All of that in a city of 70,000 people, and I will be honest at the outset in saying, uh, due to the significant differences in doctrine and practice, I don't see any way that ever we could recover the idea that we are a single church in Flagstaff under common leadership. Uh, The subject gets even more complicated when you realize there are differing levels of fellowship. Uh, One-on-one, you can have fellowship with any believer in Christ, uh, whatever church they may go to. You may have some differences to talk about, but you can sit down over a meal and have a a time of fellowship with them on that level. Um, Then on the church level, uh, as long as a church holds to the truth of the gospel, and I'll explain that more in just a moment, even though there are secondary doctrinal differences, uh, we could cooperate with other churches that preach the gospel on things like an evangelistic outreach or helping the poor, or prayer for community concerns, and so on. Even more broadly than that, we could join together even with non-Christian groups if they were advocating pro-life causes or the traditional family, laws that would uphold the traditional family, or um, anti-drug laws, those kinds of things. However, we need to be careful on that level, not to communicate to the public, we're all one. You know, there's no difference between us and some group that may be common in their cause with us on some of those wider issues. Um, So anyway, for this message, I'm going to limit myself to try to answer three questions. Number one, why is Christian unity important? Number two, 
what is biblical Christian unity? How do we describe or define it? And number three, then how do we apply Christian unity in a way that is a witness to the world? So the main idea I'm trying to get across today is that because this subject, Christian unity, is so important, we need to think biblically about what it means and how to apply it. So the first question I want to answer or try to answer is, well, why is Christian unity so important? Two reasons, because Christ died to secure it and because it's a major factor in our witness to the world. First of all, let's look at the fact that Christian unity is important because Christ died to secure it. And here I want to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. And again, I have sermons on these verses if you want to go into more depth. But Paul writes this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, he's referring to the Gentiles who were excluded from the people of God, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body through God, Uh, to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Uh, So the main point I'm drawing from that, those verses right here is, it took the cross to break down this centuries-long division between Gentile and Jewish um, races and to reconcile those two groups into one body in Christ through faith in Christ. And so... To use the familiar phrase we use at weddings, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Uh, The Jew and Gentile uh, group division is gone, and it took the death of Christ to establish that. And that's one reason it's a very important subject. A second reason Christian unity is important is Jesus said it's a major factor in our witness to the world. We don't understand the subject unless we remember that in Paul's day, the Jew-Gentile divide was enormous. Uh, Jews would not have anything to do with Gentiles. They wouldn't eat with them. Uh, If they went into Gentile territory when they got back into uh, Israel, they would literally clean the dust off their sandals because they didn't want to be contaminated by Gentiles. So there was this huge divide. And if the church could display unity between Jew and Gentile, being one body in Christ, I think you can see it would be a huge witness to a world that was used to that division. And so Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, the night uh, that he was betrayed before he was crucified, Pray this in John 17. I'm going to start up in verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf 
of these alone, that is, the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that's all of us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Again, he repeats the reason, so that the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now, I'm going to point out in the next uh, point that the unity that Jesus secured at the cross was primarily a spiritual unity, not visible, but at the same time, it must be made visible or else the world wouldn't know that it exists. And so the point is the unbelieving world should be able to look at the church and go, wow, that's different. You know, how, how come those two groups that in the world, are alienated from one another, uh, seem to be loving one another in the local church. And the demonstration of that should make them want to be a part of the church. So unity is important then because Christ died to secure it and because Jesus says that is a means of our witness to the world. What then is biblical Christian unity? Well, as I said, it is not primarily outward, but rather is an unseen reality that is based on shared life in Christ. Uh, First of all, note that biblical Christian unity is not primarily outward. And here I'm going to Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul points out that there are two types of unity. In verse 3, Paul says, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, to preserve it means it already exists. It's a fact, and uh, we have to be diligent to preserve it. It's what he referred to there in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen that I read at the beginning of the message, where Paul says, for by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body. And then he enumerates whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So that's the unity Christ achieved on the cross that we read about in Ephesians 2. And we could call that positional unity. It exists in fact, and we are called on to preserve it. But then you keep reading in Ephesians 4, and Paul, down in verse 13, he has been talking about the ministry of pastors and teachers and so on to equip the saints for the work of of ministry. And then he adds the goal in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to a mature man. Uh, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So this unity of the faith is different than the unity of the Spirit. We haven't yet arrived there. We are to attain to it as we grow in Christ. And and, uh, we could call that practical 
unity. It's a work in progress. And what I'm going to be discussing right now under this point is positional unity. And then in the next point, I'll talk about practically how can we preserve and perfect the unity that we are to work on. Now, what I'm saying here is the unity of the Spirit is not primarily outward uh, in three senses. First of all, it's not organizational unity. Whenever there's talk of Christian unity, it seems like, well, let's get an organization together and join together all the forces that are Christian in the world. Well, you have a couple of those organizations. There is the World Council of Churches, and there is the National Council of Churches. And uh, the idea is, well, let's set aside all the areas we differ, and we're all Christians, aren't we? We all call ourselves Christians, so let's come together. And so the hodgepodge you get is you have groups that belong to those organizations that deny the deity of Jesus. Uh, They deny uh, the fact that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. They deny the Trinity. I mean, on and on it goes. And those councils are notoriously theologically liberal and politically liberal. And I don't believe Christ was praying for a one-world organizational church under Uh, one governing body. A second thing Christian unity is not is uniformity, where we all look alike, talk alike, enjoy the same kinds of activities. Uh, There's no difference among us outwardly. Back in the early 1970s, um, those of you who are younger have to remember ancient history, but um, back then there was a group called the hippies, okay? And they, the guys would typically have long hair, beards. Uh, everybody wore, you know, wore sandals or went barefoot. Um, t-shirt was dress-up clothes. And, and so this was the uh, mode back then. Well, a number of my friends who looked like that got involved with a group called the local church under the leadership of a Chinese man named Witness Lee in Los Angeles. And Lee built his thing on the teaching that there's one church in a city, and so it is them, of course. We are the church in Los Angeles. We are the church in Flagstaff. There was actually a local church in Flagstaff under this banner when I came here. I think they've since moved on. But Anyway, the amazing thing was a lot of these guys joined this movement and overnight they shaved their beards, they cut their hair short, they put on white shirts with narrow dark ties because Witness Lee looked like that, and they even started talking like Witness Lee and gesturing. He always, when he talked, would move his arm like that, and you start talking to these people and they would start gesturing like that, and it was really eerie. You know, you thought, who is this person? They look like a, a robot, a clone of Witness Lee. Well, that's not unity. That is not Christian unity. The very idea that we are a body. I mean, look at your body. It's got different parts. They look different. They act different. They function differently. And yet you're one body. So 
It's not uniformity. It's not organizational, not uniformity. Neither is it unanimity on every doctrine. Now, here you have to think carefully. You have to think really carefully. Um, There are generally three broad areas of Christian doctrine. And there's a little bit of gray area between them and overlap. But at the very core, you have what I would call essential truth. And this truth is necessary for salvation. In other words, if you deny these doctrines, um, you probably, if you do it knowingly, you're either denying the faith or you're a heretic. These all true believers would agree on. Uh, They include, this isn't exhaustive, but they include the inspiration and authority of the Bible. If you throw out the Bible, where do you go? Who believes what? It's just up to every man believes what is right in his own eyes. Uh, The Trinity, that's essential. The full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for sinners that he paid the penalty we deserve. His bodily resurrection from the dead. His bodily second coming that he will return in body, bodily form. Uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. You deny these things and you, you aren't believing the gospel. So we have to hold to the core. Then moving out from the core, there's a bunch of truth that I would call uh, important, but I have to admit you don't have to hold all of these things the way I do to be saved. Um, Examples here would be uh, the whole debate about the role of God's sovereignty versus human free will in our salvation. Uh, I believe that's an important doctrine. I believe it affects the way you live. It, It affects your view of God, man, salvation, many, many things. But I have to admit there are genuine believers who differ on that subject. Uh, Same with baptism. I'll talk more, give a message on baptism later in this series. But there are true believers in Christ who hold that you should baptize infants by sprinkling And then there are those of us who hold the truth, and that is uh, that you must immerse people in water on confession of their faith. And uh, I say that to be humorous because I know some of you don't agree on that. But baptism, um, there are believers in both camps. Church government is another one, differing views. Bible prophecy, young earth, old earth creation. Uh, there are believers in both camps, even though I have an, a, a strong view on that. Uh, charismatic gifts, the um, so-called uh, sign gifts of tongues and prophecy and, and miracles and all of that. The roles of men and women in the church and in the home. Uh, the whole subject of Christians and psychology or the, the issue of divorce and remarriage. Again, there are believers across the spectrum of views on all of these subjects. And as I hope you, <clears throat> hope you see, they're not unimportant. 
They really do affect how you live your Christian life, but they're not essential for salvation. I'm not going to condemn those who differ with me on saying they're not saved because they don't agree with me. And then moving out still farther, there are views that I would call um, interesting, but they're neither essential nor important. I, I mean, they are interpretive matters on minor doctrine, and frankly, it doesn't matter what you believe on these things as to how you're going to live this week. You say, well, what, what are some of these? Well, one of them is, who are the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6? Are they demons who cohabited with women? Or are they the descendants of Seth? I don't know. I mean, I have a view. I think the latter, not the former. But it's not going to really change how I live my life this week. Or another one would be, um, uh, when did the battle? does the battle that is prophetically mentioned in Ezekiel 38, when does it happen in the future? I remember in seminary, we spent an entire week on that question and found out there are differing views even among those who hold to a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture, and they still don't agree on that. And frankly, I came out of that week saying, it really doesn't matter. Uh, take your pick. It's an interesting question, doesn't matter. Another one would be, uh, did Christ descend into hell or not? And believers debate that, okay? I don't think that will change your life if you hold to one view or another. So those three levels, and again, there's some overlap, but my point is, again, uh, unity has to hold to those essential truths or it's not Christian unity. So that leads to the second thing. It's not outward in terms of organizational uh, uniformity or unanimity on every single doctrine, but rather biblical Christian unity is an unseen truth that is based on shared life through saving faith in Christ. I believe that God the Father answered Jesus' prayer for his people to be one when he sent the Holy Spirit who baptizes every person who believes at the moment of faith into the one body of Christ. It's a spiritual thing. And that's the unity of the Spirit that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 and verse 3. Um, and then he goes on in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, and he enumerates seven elements of Christian unity and they are arranged around each member of the Trinity. He says there is one body and one spirit, because the spirit baptizes us into one body, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And again, I can't comment on those and this message, I have an entire sermon on it if you want to read it, but it is kind of ironic. Some of the things Paul mentions here are actually subjects that have divided the church, um, the Holy Spirit. There's great division over the, the role of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, or prophecy, one hope. Uh, there's 
differing opinions on that. And the same with uh, baptism, as I've already alluded to. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on those verses, points out that Paul probably structured this section in this way, he says, to show that the unity of the church is a manifestation of the perfection of the Godhead. And in another um, book, Lloyd-Jones also observes that the unity that Paul is describing here, he says, is not a question of friendliness or fellowship, but rather, he says, it's something which lifts us up into the realm of the blessed Holy Trinity. And so the point is, unity isn't getting together over a cup of coffee and talking about the football score or something like that. We're talking about our common faith in Jesus Christ, our common relationship with the triune God through faith in Christ. And we don't have to work to establish that kind of unity. God does it at the moment a person is saved. And we have to work to preserve it and then to perfect the other kind of unity, the unity of the faith. And so that leads us to the final question. How do we then apply Christian unity in a way that is a witness to the world? And for biblical Christian unity to be a witness to the world, we have to work at preserving the unity of the Spirit and perfecting the unity of the faith. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the unity of the Spirit is positional. It exists. We aren't called to attain it. We're called to preserve it. The unity of the faith, verse 13 in Ephesians 4, is a goal. He says that we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So that is something that is practical. It is in progress. And we come to it through knowing Christ more deeply. And I believe the unity of the faith is primarily doctrinal. In other words, When two believers who know the scriptures well, they know Christ experientially through faith, uh, get together, they have a closer unity than maybe a baby Christian who doesn't know anything when he would get together with them. That's the experiential or practical aspect. So the the practical question then is, well, how do we preserve and uh, promote or perfect Uh, the unity of the Spirit and the unity of the faith. I'm going to suggest seven ways. As you know, seven is the perfect number. But I will be quick to say this is not the perfect solution to this, but these will help move us in the right direction. First of all, we preserve and perfect unity by working at harmonious relationships between all believers. In Ephesians 4, again, 1 through 3, Paul says, We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And then he explains what he means. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
in a similar way in Colossians, after he's talked about how Christ has made this one new man, consisting of Jew and Gentile and slave and free and all, he goes on and then he adds this in Colossians 3, 12 through 14. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, he's implying you will have a complaint against someone in the body at some point. But then he adds, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Those verses imply that harmonious relationships do not happen spontaneously or effortlessly. You have to work at them. You have to apply these qualities to your own life and help others uh, do the same. And whether it's in the church or in our homes, you have to work hard at practicing those things. A second way we preserve and perfect unity is by growing in understanding biblical truth so that we know Christ more deeply. As verse 13 says, we attain to the unity of the faith as we come to the knowledge of the Son of God, and of course that's through the Bible, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so what I'm saying is we don't attain unity by setting aside doctrine. Eh, doctrine doesn't matter. Let's just have the feeling of love. No, we attain this unity by knowing Christ more deeply, and that through his word. And so we need to be growing in our understanding of who the Lord is through his word. A third way we preserve and uh, perfect unity is by displaying racial, cultural, and social unity and diversity. Um, We saw that in Ephesians 2 with Jew and Gentile, It's in Colossians 3 also, but uh, here I cite Galatians 3.28, where Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek in the church he's talking about. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Um, As you may know, one of Paul's major projects in his ministry He devoted a lot of time to this, and it ended up getting him arrested in Jerusalem. But he collected a large uh, gift, donation, from the Gentile churches to take it to help the poor believers in uh, Israel, in Jerusalem. And I'm convinced the reason he did it wasn't primarily because there were poor there. There were poor all over. He was doing it to demonstrate the unity between the Gentiles and the Jewish believers. He wanted to show that they're one. Uh, Now I'm going to step on a few toes here, I realize, by this next comment, but you can debate me if you like. I believe it is wrong to divide the church along racial or ethnic or cultural lines unless there is a language barrier. 
Obviously, if a group of people speaks a different language, they need to meet with those they understand. But beyond that, I think it's wrong to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church or to have a black church or a Native American church. Why? We all speak English. Can't we meet together as brothers and sisters and demonstrate racial and cultural diversity? I keep on my desk a little thing I cut out of the paper a few years ago that shows from the 2010 census. Flagstaff was approximately 64% white, 2% black, uh, 12% Native American, 18% Hispanic, and 2% Asian. Those don't all add up to 100 because there's some others that don't fit those categories. But that's pretty close to where our culture in Flagstaff is. Our church, I contend, should reflect that general diversity. And normally, yeah, those groups divide along those kinds of lines. The church should unite those groups so that the world says, what's going on? Uh, You know, normally those people wouldn't get along. Look how they love one another. And so we should reflect that diversity. A fourth way we preserve and perfect unity is by the acceptance and appreciation of one another's different gifts. Writing to the Corinthians who were all divided over, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, and all that. Paul writes that wonderful unity chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, showing that the church is made up like the body, the human body, of various members. And I don't know about you, but I prefer to have all my body parts working in coordination as one. just works better that way. And as I'm getting older, I'm finding out when they don't work right, it's not very pleasant. But Paul's point there is no member can say to another member that's different than they are, I have no need of you. You know, my eye needs my hand, needs my mouth, needs my feet, needs my blood circulating, all of the above. We all need one another. And just because someone has a different gift than you doesn't mean they aren't important or that they, you know, should be uh, divided from. We're different. And we all work together when the body works rightly And we need to accept and appreciate the differences. And so if you see somebody and they're doing something differently than you, as long as it's not unbiblical or disobedient, well, wonderful. They have a different gift. And encourage them in it. A fifth way we preserve and perfect the unity of the church is by accepting all whom Christ has accepted And yet at the same time, holding to truth that we believe are important for growth in Christ. Here I'm talking about that second level as well as the essential truth. Some of those secondary things are important. In some way, we need to figure out a way to welcome into church membership all who are truly believers. And yet at the same time, on secondary matters to hold to the views we believe the Bible teaches. For example, we may hold differing views on baptism or 
charismatic gifts or prophecy, I don't believe those are grounds to divide the body. So when I came here as a Baptist church to join this church, you had to be baptized by immersion, confession of your faith. The problem was we had some dear folks coming who were from Presbyterian or Lutheran backgrounds. Maybe we had some Episcopalian, I don't know. And um, they were baptized as infants and believed that that was what the Bible taught. And so when I first came, we had to say, sorry, you can't join this church. That grieved me because I thought, but they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't there a way we can work something out to all be part of one body? And so, not without some controversy, but we changed our constitution and tried to straddle both by saying, you know, those folks can join our church as long as they don't make a division over that doctrine They don't teach their view in our Sunday school or try to get a faction going and cause division. And they can't serve as elder if they don't agree with our doctrinal view. And the same is true not only of baptism but of the charismatic gifts. Uh, We are, I am, what I would call cautiously skeptical of most of what goes by the, the sign gifts today, speaking in tongues. I have a message on the website you can read where I try and set forth what the biblical gift is. I don't think most of what goes on today is the biblical gift. And so I'm cautious and skeptical. Others who don't agree with me can join this church as long as they don't make a division on it and try and rally everybody against Uh, the views of the church to their view on things like tongues and healings and miracles and all of those things. So that's our attempt, as difficult as it is, to try and say, if you know Jesus, you're part of the body of Christ, you can join. But we do believe these things are important and we try to... um, hold to them. I'd be glad to talk with any of you about that. I'm, uh, it's an admittedly difficult subject. A sixth way we preserve and perfect the unity of the church is by rejoicing when other gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting churches do well. There is an unfortunate spirit of competition, and maybe I feel it more because as pastors, this happens among pastors, where another church in town is drawing more people than we are, and you go, well, we're going to compete against them, you know, that's not right, we're going to get as big as they are, and so you get into a war. Wait a minute, if they believe the Bible, they preach the gospel, they exalt Jesus Christ, they're on our team. And and we should say, praise God, our team is winning, you know, and maybe we need to go learn from them. Why are they drawing more people than we are? Maybe we're not doing something we ought to be doing or we're doing something we shouldn't ought to be doing. Uh, So even though we may disagree on some secondary matters, again, if they're gospel-centered church, then we shouldn't put them down out of a spirit of competition. 
So, my, my seven things. First, harmonious relationships. Second, growing in biblical truth, growing to know Christ. Third, displaying racial, cultural, uh, social unity and diversity. Fourth, appreciating and accepting differing spiritual gifts. Fifth, accepting all those whom Christ has accepted and yet trying to hold to our important truths. Sixth, rejoicing when other solid churches do well. And then seventh, we preserve and perfect unity by holding firmly to essential biblical truth, those core doctrines, and yet at the same time guarding ourselves against the spiritual pride that we're right on every minor issue. Pride is always trying to raise its head, even among those who hold to sound doctrine. And it is right to try and understand all of the Bible, okay? But when you think you get something right, you have to be careful that you don't get puffed up with pride and put down those who don't share your view. I think you know John Calvin was not noted for being soft on sound doctrine. Calvin was very knowledgeable on sound doctrine, but he has this wise observation. He says, pride or haughtiness is the cause and commencement of all contentions. So we've got to guard ourselves against the pride of saying, you know, I'm right, and that person is wrong uh, on these secondary matters. In 1 Corinthians, again, written to this factious church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see what he's saying? If you have some light on some difficult truth, guess what? You didn't come up with that yourself. God revealed that to you. Maybe he hasn't revealed that truth to your brother in Christ. Okay, be gracious, be kind, be gentle. Uh, You're not going to win that other person by coming on with pride and by bashing them over the head with your Bible. You're going to win them through love. As you befriend them, you care about them, and you bring them along gently and God will give you the opportunity. You can open the Bible and say, well, let me share with you what he has shown me. And that's the way you bring people along, not by spiritual arrogance or pride. Now, as I said, I'm not under the illusion that those seven things are going to fix the problems of disunity that exist among churches in our country. It's a difficult problem, and I honestly don't know how to overcome some of the divisions that exist. But I'm trying to walk in this message a tightrope between, on the one hand, not abandoning sound doctrine. We need doctrine. We need to hold to the truth. And at the same time, uh, growing with humility and love for all who name the name of Christ. I want to end maybe with this word of wisdom that um, if you've never read J.C. Ryle, I encourage you to read the man. I don't agree with him on everything. He was an Anglican bishop, and I am not in favor of a lot of things in the Anglican church. He lived in the 19th century, so he's got some quaint views here and there. But this man knew Christ, 
And uh, you read him and you just go, wow, this, this brother knew the Lord. And here's what he said. He said, controversy and religious strife, no doubt, are odious things. Odious means they stink. Okay. But he says there are times when they are a positive necessity. Unity and peace are very delightful, but they are bought too dear if they are bought at the expense of truth. And then he goes on for quite a while on that thought, and then he concludes the paragraph saying, Controversy, in fact, is one of the conditions under which truth in every age has to be defended and maintained, and it is nonsense to ignore it. It's the line I'm trying to help us to see on this difficult subject. Next week, I'm going to talk about resolving doctrinal differences in the church. What do we do when two people disagree on some doctrine? And then subsequent weeks, I want to talk about resolving personal differences. Somebody's wronged you in the church. What do you do? And then personality and methodology differences. What do you do when somebody's personality grates on yours or maybe when you just don't agree about how to do the Lord's work? So that's kind of where I'm going with the next few weeks. Let's bow together in prayer. Dear Father, I come before you and ask that you would help us to love one another, even as Christ loved us. Help us to walk the fine line between sound doctrine and love for all, even those who differ with us on secondary issues. I pray, Lord, especially if any are here who do not understand the good news of Christ, that you would open their eyes to understand, to see the truth, that they cannot be reconciled to you by their good works, that we all have sinned, that we all deserve your judgment, but that out of love you sent your Son, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to bear the penalty on the cross that we deserved. Thank you that you raised him from the dead, and thank you that you now offer eternal life and forgiveness of sins to everyone who simply receives that gift by faith. I pray that none would walk away this morning without the gift of Christ and salvation. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.